So we're going to read this morning from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full understanding, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. One thing that this season has taught me is how hard we have to work. I, I know there are those out there who are working less, that you've been laid off or you've lost hours or you've lost clients. But there are those out there who need to keep working, who are allowed to keep working in some form or fashion, and, and have been working harder. Most of our work is dependent on relationships. And how do relationships work if you can't be near or with those people? Millions of Americans are learning new telecommuting strategies, and it's no longer a thing just for the tech fields. Teachers are trying to figure out how to hold web classes and praying that students show up and especially if they show up on time. Grocery stores and fast food chains have become crowd control professionals trying to get everyone to stand in line six feet apart. Employees at essential businesses are learning how to sanitize nearly everything that crosses their paths. Parents are juggling making lunches and homeschooling kids and still completing their day jobs. And at Gateway, I've found myself busier, which it's strange. Uh, this is definitely a people work business. Ministry is people work, and, and I don't get to be with people as much. You'd think my load would be lighter. I would much prefer to be meeting people regularly for coffee or breakfast or lunch. But that's been curtailed. And so now we've become live streamers on YouTube, and we've had to figure out all the complexities of that. We're holding a weekly prayer time. Growth groups continue. Our formal pastoral meetings and our informal pastoral decision-making conversations have become almost constant, far more prevalent, as we attempt to stay on top of all this COVID-19 mess, in addition to our ordinary pastoral responsibilities. And you know, I'm, as I'm looking at the timeline of things, I think we're going to be doing this for a while longer. That's just the reality. And if that's the case, these temporary measures we've taken are just not going to be enough. There's more work we have to do because 
the work of the church or any church is too important to put on hold for a month or two months or three months, maybe more. And so there's more to do. And man, it's hard. And yet it's desperately worth it. When you come to a passage like Colossians 1, 2, uh, 1 24 through 2, 5, I, I think we see that that is precisely Paul's point. Gospel work is hard work, but it's desperately worth it. This passage is a mess of ideas packed on top of one another. You can almost feel the weight of the heaviness of the, past, of the task that Paul is trying to describe. And in it we find descriptions of the weight of the work, reasons for the work, and one immediate concern of that work. So that's my outline. The weight of the work, the reasons for the work, and the immediate concern of the work. The weight of the work is described at least three different ways in this passage, and it leaps off the page from the first words. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Sufferings, afflictions. It's not a pretty picture, is it? And yet, and yet, Paul says he rejoices. He rejoices to suffer. And in that very first idea, we have an indication of my contention that gospel work is hard work, but it's worth it. Because whatever it is, it is suffering that produces rejoicing. But that's the first description of this work. The gospel work is suffering. Paul punctuates it with this, that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't suffer fully. It doesn't mean that he didn't suffer enough on the cross. You, you can't walk away from verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1 and think that idea. And I, I hope you've read the entire book, and we're encouraging you each week that we're preaching from Colossians, just read through the entire book. It'll take you about 15 minutes. And you will not walk away from reading this book thinking that Paul believes that Jesus didn't do all the suffering he needed to do. Here's the, the tip-off. This word afflictions is not the word the Bible uses for Jesus' suffering for the sins of his people. So what does Paul mean then by the afflictions of Christ? Well, in Jewish thought before Jesus came, there was an understanding that the days before the end of everything would be filled with trials and difficulties. The days of the Messiah would be days of great difficulty for God's people. Jesus himself picked up on this idea and agreed with it. He taught the same thing in his own way to his disciples. Paul isn't talking about the afflictions that Jesus did not go through. He's talking about the afflictions brought on God's people because Jesus came. Think of the things that Jesus taught. In Luke 21, Jesus taught, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus said they were blessed who are persecuted for righteousness. And that his followers will be those about whom the world utters all kinds of evil against you falsely 
on Christ's account. Jesus also said that the religious leaders would kill, crucify, and flog his followers. And in John, he let his disciples know quite plainly, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I'm sorry if someone told you that you could be comfortable while following Jesus. I'm very sorry if someone gave you that impression. And heaven forbid anyone told you that Jesus wants you to be successful or prosperous or healthy in this life. I'd be very sorry if that were the case, because that's just not what Jesus promised. To follow Jesus, we should expect quite the opposite. We should expect suffering, but also incredible joy, incredible joy. And we'll get to some of the reasons why that is in a moment. So here's the idea. Jesus suffered for sins once for all, as the author of Hebrews puts it. Jesus was crucified and put to death, the perfect payment for the sins of the world. He is the perfect sinless one who is both God and man. So he paid the sin debt that sinners owe. And you can get in on that. You can have your debts paid for before God if you turn to Jesus in faith and turn away from your old way of sin. And when Jesus did that, those who became his followers were made one with him. And that means that the world that had turned on Jesus and hated Jesus and attempted to destroy Jesus will now set its sights on what seems to be an easier target, his followers. And so it's an age of affliction. And we get to joyfully participate in it. Here's what the world doesn't know, but Christians know. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and is seated in glory, so too those who are his followers will rise from the dead and bask in his glory. So afflict me, kill me, and watch me rise. But those afflictions are ultimately for the church. You see, they, they aren't afflictions that don't have benefit. But that will have to wait for the, the second point of this sermon. So before I get there, there's two other descriptions of this gospel work I want to touch on. Paul says in verse 25, he describes this, this work as a servanthood. He, he says that he became a minister of the church, but a, a more typical rendering of that word minister is servant. Minister isn't a wrong word, but us modern Americans tend to think of a minister as a religious official, and that's not what Paul meant. He meant a servant. He was given a stewardship by God. That's another big word. And, and that means he had a duty or a, a responsibility or a charge. And his charge was to proclaim the gospel. It's what he was a servant over or a servant of. 
If you had servants in your home, and wouldn't that be nice, uh, you might have different stewardships for them. One might be a steward or a servant over the food, the cook, the chef. One might be a servant of entertaining the guests, the host, and one might be over the cleaning, the, the housekeeper. This is Paul's responsibility as a servant, to make God's word fully known. This leads Paul on a bit of an aside, a bit of a rabbit trail, but he, he ties it into his, his broader point uh, about how awesome this message is. He calls it a mystery, not because it was a secret per se, but because for thousands of years before Jesus, all the details of God's amazing plan were unknown. Think of the, the generations of faithful men and women who came before and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob. Think about Moses. Think about um, the, the prophets and think about King David. All they saw were glimpses of what the fullness of God's plan would be like, but the specifics of it remained a mystery to them. And the answer to that mystery is centered squarely on the person of Jesus Christ. And all the things that Christ has done, and all the things that Christ is doing, and all these things that would have amazed the faithful generations that had gone before. In this case, God has now revealed to His people, that's His, his saints, and refers to His people or His church, that He has even called the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jewish nations, who had never heard of him, God has even called them to experience God's marvelous glory, which is revealed in Christ and is the source of all true hope. And that brings us to the third characterization of this work. Although his particular stewardship was preaching, this preaching was an agonizing struggle. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Even before Paul gets to the words toil and struggle, you feel it, don't you? In the sort of urgency of his words and how everything keeps piling on top of each other, warn, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom to present everyone mature. The old translation more literally would say something like warning all men and teaching all men with all wisdom that we might present all men mature in Christ. The old translation, though not very gender neutral, maybe reveals a bit more of what Paul's intention was. Of course, Paul didn't think he was going to proclaim Jesus to every person in the world. He was getting up there in years probably by this point. He was one man in a very, very large world. And he certainly didn't think everyone was going to respond positively this, to this message and get saved. After all, Paul was himself writing this letter from jail. He was in jail for preaching the gospel. He was uh, feeling the afflictions of his ministry. He was being persecuted. Rather than mean, meaning all people, meaning all 8 billion people on the earth, or however many were alive in Paul's day, he means something like all sorts of people, all people without distinction, all types of people, whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, men or women, slaves or free, famous or insignificant, doctors or drug dealers. All of these people, Paul spends 
time on because he sees that in Christ all the types and varieties of creatures that God made in his image, mankind, human beings, he is calling to form a new people, the church, his saints. And so he's warning them. He's warning them because that good news that Jesus can save you from your sins means there's a bad news that you will inevitably face judgment and die in your sins. And he's teaching them this good news with all wisdom that he has so that he might bring all the varieties of people, every tongue and tribe and language and culture and ethnic group to the throne of Jesus. Now I'm going to come back to some of the specifics here. Um, this idea of presenting everyone mature in Christ because I think he, he picks that theme back up in the next Section. So put a pin in that. I want to here simply emphasize his urgent struggle. But also note that it is Paul's struggle, but he's not so arrogant or boastful to say, look at all I've done for Jesus. No, instead he says, that everything he does, he does only with all Christ's energy that Christ powerfully works within him. Gospel work is agonizing toil, but for the Christian, it is not accomplished through one's own strength. It is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged individualism, and get it done. It's Christ's power being worked into Paul that allows him to do it. On his own, Paul is weak, but in Christ, he's strong. So, Christian, is that what you signed up for? Because that is the Christian calling. This is gospel work. Paul, an apostle, had a unique gospel calling, but we're each given a unique gospel calling. We're each called to share in the gospel work, and it will be painful. It will be full of afflictions. It will be a struggle. It will be a service. Well, <clears throat> why then? If this work is so painful and laborious and anguishing, why do it at all? Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul gets into that in more detail. And maybe we'll start to see why Paul has so much joy. There's at least three reasons here that Paul gives for the work he's doing. Now, Paul had momentarily gotten lost in the riches of the gospel work and, and his labors in it. So now he brings things back around to why he's doing it. He's doing it for the benefit of the Christians in Colossae and the Christians in Laodicea, which were two cities in central Turkey, um, West Asia, and, and probably those in the surrounding regions is what he means by all the other ones who haven't seen me face to face, the other little cities and towns in that area of the world. But why? What, what are his goals for these people? Well, first, he says that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, it's easy to read that and, and the next one that I'm going to give you and read that with a certain sappy sentimentality. Don't do that. This, this word encouraged does not mean a box of tissues and an arm on your shoulder. 
or at least it means a heck of a lot more than that. It probably doesn't mean less than that, but it means a whole lot more than that. In Greek, and remember, this letter was written in Greek. The, the heart wasn't the place where the emotions were. For Greeks and Hebrews as well, the, the heart was the decision-making part of you. When they spoke of the heart, they meant something probably closer to what we mean when we say the head. If you wanted to talk to the Greeks about your emotions, then you'd have to talk about encouraging their bowels. They thought of the emotions as being in the gut or the bowels, the splunknon. Paul wants to encourage them, but more in the sense of exhort them, push them on, encourage them forward, encourage them to be more. The word was most often used of helping people toward Christian growth and maturity or important changes, as the case might be, to be more like Jesus. So that's number one, to help other people be more like Jesus. That's one goal of gospel ministry. So, Christian, you who are called to gospel uh, work, gospel labor, anguishing, toiling, gospel labor, how can you work on this goal right now? How can you be helping other people to be more like Jesus? Well, <clears throat> let's be thankful for the opportunities we have. We want to be respectful of our governing leaders, and we want to be respectful for, uh, of the danger of the present situation. But we have all this technology at our disposal. Husbands, how are you helping your wives to be more like Jesus? Wives, how are you helping your husbands to be more like Jesus? Have you gotten on FaceTime? Have you gotten on Skype? Have you gotten on Zoom to encourage someone else? Or even just a, a phone call to encourage somebody else? Not just check in how they're doing or, or wonder when the baseball season is going to start, but to help them to be more like Jesus, to exhort them in their minds or faithful living. It's very close to what we would typically say is discipling. Discipling someone. Doing spiritual good for another person to make them more like Jesus. Here's the second one. <clears throat> Paul hopes that they would be knit together in love. Again, sounds a little bit sappy, but the idea is that the Christians in Colossae would be united and that their unity would be based on love. Not romantic love, not some hippie free love, but the love that Christ demonstrated for his people. A willingness to sacrifice everything for the good of another. Jesus laid down his life to save sinners from their sins. And so... That is a crazy kind of love. And he calls us to live toward each other with that kind of love as well. And if you live with that kind of love toward other people, that's a unifying love, isn't it? And so Paul is struggling. He is agonizing for this goal that they would have this sort of unifying love among them. So how can you work toward that goal right now? How can you be demonstrating a self-sacrificing love that draws Christians in particular together? So there, there, there's two things that we can do. So, so on one hand, 
You've got Christians in your church. Uh, how can you sacrifice for them? What are you doing? If you are doing well right now, how are you preparing yourself to sacrifice of your good things, your values, your material, your priorities, and your rights for the Christian who doesn't have those things? Maybe you're working and, and you have no sign of a job loss in sight and you know that your fellow brothers and sisters are going to be coming into a time of economic lack and so you are intentionally setting aside resources for them. Maybe you're checking in on those who cannot get groceries for themselves or can't pick up their medicines for themselves. And, and you're making sure, even though it's inconvenient to you, and, and it's a little bit of a risk to you, but it's a huge risk to them. And so you're sacrificing of your own rights and priorities to make sure they are taken care of. And the non-Christians in your lives... They too can be united to Christ's people in love if they see and hear about the love of Christ. Maybe you have a, a neighbor who can't get out. Maybe you have a neighbor that's lost a job. How can you encourage them? How can you speak truth and hope to them and show them the good news of what Jesus has done to them and tell them of the good news of what Jesus has done for them so that they might also get knitted in by Christ's love to this tapestry, this quilt that he is making called his church. How can you use this season to knit together Christians in love? The third one, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Well, that's a mouthful. Um, I like how the Christian Standard Bible rephrases it. It says, all the riches of complete understanding. But that still makes me ask, understanding of what? What does Paul want them to have a complete understanding of that's so rich? Well, it's everything of God, everything of Jesus. Paul's ultimate goal, however lofty, however far away it might seem, is that his fellow Christians would enjoy all the riches of knowing God, and that means they must fully know God. But it gets greater still because the ultimate end of that, the most specific, specific application of that is the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So at this point, Paul even concedes that in Christ are still more hidden treasures, more mysteries. Should you live forever, and if you are in Christ, you will. You'll never exhaust the treasures of who Christ is, what he has done, what he is like. You'll never run out. But yet Paul sees his gospel work as pushing on toward that end. No wonder he rejoices in this suffering. No wonder it's easy for him to say that this work is worth it despite its difficulty. Because no matter how long we live, no matter how far we go, we can, we can always continue to be dug deeper down into the, the wonderful riches of who Christ is. 
how will you, Christian, how will you, gospel worker, make good on this goal, on this priority in this season? It might not feel like it, but this season is a gift. If you're not commuting to work, think of how much extra downtime you have, not running out for lunch. And most of us have more time on our hands in a weird sort of way. We're working harder with more time on our hands. What are you doing during this, this strange season to dig deeper into the riches of the glories of Christ? Those treasures that are there that you can never fully unearth, but they're there for you to enjoy. And how are you helping others to see them and experience them? It is a wonderful privilege we have. Do not waste this gospel season. Well, all of that said, Paul has an immediate concern that he needs to turn to. It's likely that what has prompted him to write the letter in the first place is what he's about to say next. All this hard work with all these valuable goals comes to a head at verse 3. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, there's apparently other teachers in their ear who are telling them good things. Good-sounding arguments. Things that sound like true religion, that seem valuable, but those teachings are a delusion. They sound good, but they aren't good. If Paul has worked hard enough, and if that work has had its intended result, there won't be a lot of concern about these false teachers. And in fact, Paul is encouraged he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The Colossian Christians are holding fast to the Christian faith, faith as it had been taught by the Apostle Paul and by the other apostles and by the servants um, that, that had followed in their footsteps. But there's still enough of a concern that Paul needed to write a letter, and that wasn't a little deal in the ancient world to write a letter. In the next several weeks, we're going to go into some of the lies that these false teachers seem to have been spewing. But for now, I, I want you to notice that all this hard gospel work is an inoculation of sorts against the deadly disease of false teaching. Of course, even when you get a vaccine, it doesn't always work as well as you'd like. If you get a flu vaccine, for instance, it, it might work perfectly for you. Uh, on the other hand, you, it, it might miss, it, or it might not do anything for you, and you still might get sick. Or in many cases, you get sick, but it's less severe than it would have been without the, the, vi um, excuse me, without the vaccine. But maybe you get the shot, but someone else in your house can't get the shot, and they get the vaccine. So even though you are protected, you are inoculated against the virus, somebody you love and you care about is being impacted by it, and that means you're impacted by it. And so all of this work, all of this toil and hard work, it, it does help prevent the disease of false teaching from spreading. But even still, there can, there can be work to do. And Paul is concerned about that. 
This season is an amazing gospel opportunity, but it is also an amazing opportunity for gospel peril. Because unfortunately, while there are a million wonderful, God-fearing, faithful gospel voices on YouTube and Facebook and, and all the different social media that are out there, there's also a lot of charlatans, false prophets, liars, deceivers, fools, and even some good men and women who mean well, but in their exuberance or inexperience and, and lack of wisdom, spew nonsense that can be dangerous to your soul. How do you know the difference? You need to be on guard for this. Here's the, the first thing. If, if you are not even aware of the fact that our public sphere is full of voices that are not really Christian, but fall under the label of Christian, that's the first indication that you need to watch out. You need to be uh, deeply engrossing yourself in the company of a gospel-preaching church. And for those of you at Gateway, if, if this is new to you, get with your other Gateway brothers and sisters and say, what out there is, are these unfaithful and dangerous teachings? Help me to see them. What out there coheres and adheres with and to the pure, unadulterated gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? You need to learn the dangerous myths that are out there because they are out there. Secondly, you do have an understanding. Make sure you're careful. Make sure you're parsing things, especially during this season when we're all online a little bit more than we'd normally be. Know that there are dangers out there. Listen carefully. Test everything by the Word of God. Test everything by the Scriptures. Ask questions to those who are wiser and more godly and older in the faith than you are for sure, but test everything against the Word of God. Make sure that they're interpreting everything in context, that they're not just pulling verses out of context and twisting them to mean what they want them to mean. Because there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, the scriptures are clear that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you with a, a forked tail and horns and, and, and spewing evil myths that are, that are just obvious and, and clear. No, he, he, he works in this world to delude you with plausible arguments, arguments that sound good. They sound reasonable. They sound fair. They sound like the truth. That's the tricky part. That's the deceptive part. Look, I don't think Satan is out there doing this because it's ineffective. He's doing it because it's effective. And so we need to be on guard. And we need to be on guard looking out for each other, especially saints at Gateway looking out for one another. Keeping an eye on one another that in this season where we're going to be exposed to a lot of different voices, that we are protecting one another, we're helping to inoculate one another with the good word of the gospel. And we're encouraging one another as we do it. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray for us a gateway that we would, and, and all the Christians who are listening, that they would not shrink back from the call of anguishing labor in the gospel. May we be faithful to it. We pray that we would be carriers of the message of hope on our lips and that with that, our actions would be as best as we are able in line with that, that we would not live out lives of hypocrisy. And Father, we pray for all those who here who have not been knit together in love with your church because they have not heard or have not known or have not understood or have not recognized or have refused to surrender to the love of your son Jesus demonstrated on his death on the cross. We pray that they would place their faith and trust in him even now, turn their back on their sins and so call him King and Lord and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.